Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. Well, good, uh, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Aaron, as Jamar mentioned, and he went ahead and put all my business out on the street. I am a former bartender. Uh, that is part of my life. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> he did mention several things about me, so I figured I'd go ahead and, and, and highlight them. You know, I, I am uh, thankful to be here. Jamar uh, played a, a pillar role in me being here, along with several others. Um, but um, just, just a privilege to be here. I am now married. I, I remember... She would tell you, and, and I, I, would, I agree that, that when, when we first met, actually she met me, she knew me from 2008, and I didn't realize who she was until uh, 2013, and in that time frame, I'll tell you, I was unmarriable, so it worked out perfect. The Lord knew what he was doing, and, uh, and now we have been married uh, for coming up on six years in September, and uh, do have two small children, uh, three and about 18 months, and so that's helpful for you to know, because I will reference them some uh, this morning, but... It's just a testament of the Lord's faithfulness in my life and, and uh, how he's worked and moved, and uh, I'm just thankful for them. <clears throat> but I handle our youth and college ministries here at, at Word, and so I work with um, pretty much seventh grade, kind of to the young adult age is kind of my uh, range. And I remember a couple of months ago, Jamar, we were putting the calendar together, and he, he told me there would be an opportunity to preach this Sunday, and I was excited about that opportunity. and um, <clears throat> and and then a couple weeks ago, he asked me, okay, what we knew we kind of wanted to do a manhood series. So we've been in the book of Acts, and we're actually taking a break, and we're, we're going to be doing kind of a manhood series for the next three weeks. And so, and he asked me, he said, you know, hey, is there anything on your, on your mind that you would be interested in preaching in uh, uh, for this Sunday? And I had to think for a minute, um, but when I thought about the things that I've been studying, the, the, the age range I deal with, um, I deal a lot with what's called Generation Z now. And so it's, it's kind of a, a younger, younger group, like I told you. But I also have been studying a lot about fathers, as I have two small children. That's been on my mind a lot. But then also I've been keeping up with the trends in America and the things happening in America. And so when I thought about all those three things together, um, this passage that I chose this morning, Psalm 78, it came to my mind. It's become one of my favorite sections in the Bible, this chapter. So that's where we'll be at this morning, Psalm 78. Now, as you flip there in your Bible, don't be alarmed. It is 72 verses. So, hope you brought your lunch. No, I'm joking. We're, we're just doing the first eight verses. So, uh, so, don't be alarmed when you flip there. It is a lengthy psalm, uh, but we're going to highlight the first eight verses. And so, I, I think this psalm sums up everything that I've been talking about and, and studying and looking into. I think it, it brings them all together in a very uh, clear, unique way. And, um, and so, I'm excited about sharing that with you this morning. The title of the sermon today is The Blueprint for Success. The Blueprint for Success. And as I began studying this passage, um, for some reason, blueprints came into my mind. I, I, um, if you're familiar with blueprints, they are very, very important to building a new building or a house. or anything. If you're going to build something, you need blueprints. And so I've had an opportunity to, to be involved with some new construction um, homes. And everyone that works on the house one of the first things they ask you is, hey, do you have a copy of the blueprints? They need to see the blueprints so they know what they're building. And I can remember uh, not long ago, um, I was 
helping out on a job site. And I don't know that I was doing much helping. I was probably more in the way, but I was there present and they were getting ready to pour the concrete. And two of the guys were going around measuring, looking at things, making sure they were putting stakes in the ground to know where to pour the concrete. And uh, they said, something's not right. Something is off here. There, there's, something's wrong. And so they got the team together and they opened up the blueprints. They went to the blueprints. They said, let's get them out and let's see what it says. And they opened up the blueprints. And a few guys started calling off numbers to them. And the, the other two guys began measuring. And they said, well, this one looks good. This one looks good. And then they got to a third measurement and they said, hang on, something's wrong here. This measurement's off. And they went to the next one. They said, this one, because this one's off, it caused this one to be off, the next measurement to be off. And it was just kind of a, a, a ladder effect that they all began to be off because of that one measurement was off. And so they consulted the blueprints and they, guess what, they fixed the problem. And they solved it and handled it and got the concrete poured. When I think about America right now, and I think about the things going on here, I believe that we are facing a great problem. We're in the midst of a crisis. And I believe it's the absent father crisis. I believe we are suffering from a, a major crisis in, uh, in our country, but not just in our country, in our world, and that is the absent father crisis. And I believe because of that problem, we're starting to see other problems happen that are, that are, are, are taking place. If you don't take my word for it, I want to show you uh, something that I got from the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, this is based on 2020. I want to show you a couple of slides here. This was some, some things they did. And you see, they titled it. This is the U.S. Census Bureau, and they titled it The Father Absent Crisis in America. And if you can't read it back there, I know it's kind of small. I'm going to read uh, starting with kind of the second line there. It says, um, one in four children live in a house without a biological step or adoptive father in the house. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all of the social ills facing America today. Research shows when a child is raised in a father absent home, he or she is affected in the following ways. And so I want to show you these ways now. Once again, I realize you probably can't read that. The way it was formatted is kind of difficult for us, but we got it. But the ways that 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 the absent father shows up in our society. We see a greater risk for poverty, more likely to become pregnant as a teen, more likely to have behavioral problems, face abuse and neglect. In fact, you're at a greater risk for infant mortality. So if the father's not there, greater risk in infant mortality. I found that interesting. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, go to prison, to suffer from obesity, commit, commit a crime, and to drop out of high school. We're facing a crisis in, in America, and, and because the father is not present, because there is an absent father crisis, we're seeing it show up in these different ways. Now, the U.S. Census Bureau, they, they were limited in their scope. I believe that there's even a greater problem that they failed to mention um, that we in the church, I feel like it's our job to address. And I believe that the absent father is actually leading to a greater problem, and that is the rejection of God. Because there's an absent father crisis, in our country, in our world, it's leading to the rejection of God. You might ask, where did I get that from? Well, I told you I've been, I, I studied Generation Z, and I've, I've, I've been reading some books along this topic and, and studying a little bit. And one of the most recent books I read is just type, titled simply that, Generation Z. And in it, um, that generation, they, they say that it's, it's kind of the age range from 1999 to 2015. Children born in that time frame fit Generation Z. 
Now, the author said that um, as he's been studying and doing this, what he found was that there is a growing class in America called the nuns. Now, I'm not talking about the Catholic nun. I'm talking about it's just nuns, the class of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And in that, that, that group is defined. You may be asking, what in the world is that? That group is defined as the religiously unaffiliated, meaning they don't affiliate with any religious group. And so if you were to go to the store this afternoon and bump into someone and ask them, hey, what, what do you believe in? What, do you, what denomination do you claim? Or is there any faith or set of teachings that you hold to religiously? They would tell you, no. They would tell you, I am nothing. I don't fit any of those. I'm not a Baptist. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Jew. I'm not any defined faith. I don't fit into any of those categories. Now, this group, it makes up one out of every four adults. One out of, one out of every four adults would fit in this category. And so this author said that this group, the group of the nuns, is now the largest religious group in America, as well as the fastest growing. So not only are they the largest, but they're still they're growing faster than any other religious group in America. Now, he gave them the title religious group. I found that interesting. He did it for a couple of reasons. The first is that this group, the people from this group, they would tell you at some point in time in their life, they did hold to some kind of religious teaching. They were a Baptist or they were a Catholic or XYZ. They were something as far as that goes. Secondly, and I believe the, the, the main reason he defines them as a religious group is because they would tell you, this group would tell you that they do believe in something, that they are religious, they are spiritual. They believe in angels and demons. They, they believe in a higher being. But they're very vague and broad on what they believe. They might tell you there's multiple ways to get to heaven or uh, things of that nature. And so they're very vague and broad on that. But they would tell you they are religious. They may go to church sometimes. They may worship something sometimes. And so they would tell you that they are religious. But this is the largest religious group in the country, according to this author. And secondly, he goes on to say that in our country, um, about half of the nation's adults are now considered post-Christian. Post-Christian. So what that means is that, is that when we say post-Christian, it means that Christianity is no longer the dominant religion at a place that it once was. And so most of us, it's not a stretch for us to say that most people believe America was founded on, as a Christian nation. In our founding, our founding fathers, they said we are going to be a Christian nation. And so we be, America is believed to be a Christian nation. This author would tell you that that is not the case anymore, that we are a post-Christian country, meaning Christianity was the dominant religion. It's not anymore. I don't take the same step as he does. I think that we are trending that way, but I would say we haven't quite fallen over the ledge yet, but we're getting very close. In the second book I was reading, um, they talked about teenagers. They focused on kind of the age range from about 13 to 18. And in it, they said that um, teens that grow up in the church are leaving the church at an all-time high. 66% of students that grow up in a church between the ages of 18 to 22 will leave the church. That's the, that's the most recent studies. So that, what that means is that 66% of those children over there when they graduate high school and get a job or go to college or move out of your house, whatever it may be, they will leave the faith. Some of them leave the faith for good. Many of them, they, they may still claim it, but they don't attend a church. They're not plugged into a local body, those things. But many of them leave the faith and say, hey, I'm, I'm, they fall into this class of the nuns. 
That's where many of them go. They go to the class of the nuns. Now, before we get all doom and gloom and, and everything's bad, let me, let me just encourage you that Christianity is still the largest religion on, the, on, on earth. And the Lord is still working. He's still doing great things, wonderful things. And so don't be discouraged by these numbers. But I do think that we should, should hear them and, and, and realize, that, hey, this is a great warning sign. The trends are not going in the right direction. And so we need to see what we need to do. We need to ask, well, why are they leaving the faith? And I believe the answer relates back to the father. I believe the absent father crisis is causing people to leave the faith and reject God. The reason I make that conclusion is because also in this same book, the second one that I was reading about the teenagers leaving the church, in the top 10, they had top, 10 top factors uh, that they looked to determine whether a child would stay in the church or not, stay, remain in the faith or not. And out of those top 10, the father was a factor in three of those. So out of the top 10, the fathers were directly related to the top in the top 10. And I, and I thought that out of three of the top ten factors the Father had to do with them, I thought that was pretty impressive. Um, and so I believe that, th that they are connected. That because of the absent Father, children are leaving the faith. They're rejecting God. And I believe in our passage today, Asaph, he's, uh, he's credited as, as, as the author of this psalm. And Asaph, we don't know a ton about him, but it's believed that he was one of David, King David. Uh, it's believed that he was one of his worship leaders, if you will. He, he did music for David and wrote songs and wrote literature for David. And so it's believed he worked directly for King David, which is a good place to, to work. Um, and so um, other than that, we don't know a ton about him. But he is credited with writing this psalm. And I believe Asaph realized that his, in his time, they were facing a crisis as well. They were in the midst of a, a problem. And I believe that he challenges the fathers. I believe he goes to the blueprints, he looks at what God has laid out, and he, and he challenges the fathers. I believe he challenges the fathers in three ways. He, he, he calls them to action, and he tells them, number one, to look back. He, he calls the fathers to look back. To look back at what God had established. Number two, he, he, he reminds us that the fathers need to teach. They need to teach the next generation about the things that God has done and, and how he's worked and moved in the past. And, and, and number three, fathers need to warn. They need to warn the future generation of, of the pitfalls and the dangers that they face if they don't follow God, if they reject God. And so Asaph, he lays out these three things, and I believe it's a great strategy for us today in 2021 to apply to our crisis today. Now, before I read... You may be thinking, okay, you've mentioned fathers need to do these things. And you might say, I'm not a father. Maybe I'm, I don't have children. Maybe I'm not married yet. Those things. Don't check out. Because I believe that there are probably younger people in your life that you can teach these things to. That you can encourage to reach the next generation. I believe that you still play a vital role in this even if you don't have children just yet. Even if you never have children, I believe you still can play a vital role in this process and reaching the next generation. Second, you might be saying, hey, you know what? My children, they're grown. They're, they're, they're grown. They've moved out. They've moved out and they no longer live with me. Let, let me tell you something. You still have a voice in, your, in their life. I'm 31 years old and, and I 
I still value what my father says. I still trust what he says. I, I love to hear from him and, and his advice on things. And so I still listen to those things. And so you still have a voice in your children's life. And lastly, you may be saying, well, I'm not even a male. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman in here. I believe the things that I'll be talking about today are still, they still can apply to you in reaching and encouraging the next generation. But I believe that God has established an order for us. He's established an order. I believe it's the, the man's job to lead out in this thing. But I believe that women, you still play a vital and key role. And, and let me say this. I believe you have been doing this probably better than the men have been doing. And it's time for us to catch up to what you guys have been doing. There's a reason I didn't have a slide that said the mother, the absent mother crisis in America. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. And so I think that you can gain some application, though, and be encouraged from this as well this morning. Hopefully you've had an opportunity to find Psalm 78. I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to read the first eight verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. In this first movement, we're going to highlight the first three verses. And I believe Asaph is challenging the fathers to look back, to look back. He says in verse two that he's going to open his mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings of old. The first time I read that, I was thinking, man, that's that's over my head. Dark sayings of old parables. Uh, you can I, I'm going to avoid that. This don't think when you read this, don't think complicated. Don't think uh you know, you got to have some kind of special enlightenment, enlightenment to understand this. Don't think that. What, what Asaph is saying here is that these parables and these dark sayings of old, you should think not confusing or challenging, but you should think importance. You should think importance. And what he was saying is, is that these are to be valued. These sayings and these teachings of old, they should be valued and looked into. You should carefully investigate these things and carefully seek to understand them. And so he's saying you should study these things and look at them uh, and, and think deeply on them. Jesus actually quoted this in Matthew 13, 35. I'm not going to bring it up, but he actually quoted this uh, when he was in his teaching ministry. He was, if you're familiar with Jesus, you know he used a lot of parables in his teaching. That was a very common thing that he taught in. It's believed that he had about approximately 40 parables that he used from the, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's only what we have recorded, right? We have a lot of Jesus' life that we don't have recorded. Um, but his disciples, they, after he had taught one day, they asked him, they said, Lord, why, why are you always uh, uh, teaching in parables? And Jesus actually said, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. So he's actually quoting this. And what Jesus and Asaph both realize is that these things, these, there's been an established order. 
They're looking back to the, these things have been in place since the foundation of the world. And so they're looking back to the way that God has laid out things, the way God has ordered things. And so they're looking back. He's challenging fathers to look back. The order was clear that, that, that also from verse 3, the order was clear that fathers were the, to take up this role. It was the father's role to do this. It says, these things we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. And so fathers were the ones to be the ones that, that, that teach. And I believe that Asaph, he was pulling this principle from a couple places. Number one, I think about Genesis, the, the creation order. God created man. Adam was the one that was created first. God gave him the instructions and the rules and the things, and he was to communicate those to Eve. It was, that was the order. That was the trick. Adam shared those things with Eve. That was the, the plan. Now, we know he, we, he messed up. He failed. Like men often do, we mess up, we make mistakes. That's common in our DNA. That's what we do. But Adam, he messed up. But I believe there's another place that Asaph is pulling this principle from, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 10. This, this section in Deuteronomy is actually highlighting something that happened. You see, when God brought the people out of Egypt, he used the servant Moses to do that, and, and Moses is the one that actually wrote Deuteronomy. When they came out of Egypt, they had just witnessed God do some incredible things and the plagues and all those things. And, and God actually showed him to them at, at Mount Horeb. And so there's a big mountain and the people, they gathered at the base of the mountain and God, his presence dwelt on top of it uh, for, for the people to kind of be able to see. And uh, it's interesting, they actually didn't like that. They actually didn't respond very well to that. That's a topic for another day. But that's what we're, we're going to read here in Deuteronomy 4, 9 and 10, what's, what the context here. And, uh, and so it says, only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart in all the days of your life. And it's talking about the plagues and it's talking about all those things that God had been doing in the midst of them uh, and that they were able to see a first up close and personal view of these things. They were able to see these things. And he says, but make them known, these things that you've seen with your eyes, make them known to your sons and grandsons. There's the principle there. Make them known to your sons and grandsons. And in verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. And so we see the principle there. They had seen these things. They had witnessed these things. They had been a part of these things, and they were to teach them to the next generation. And so I believe Asaph was, was pulling from that principle there. It was a father's job to teach. That they, they, they had heard these things from their fathers. That's where they were supposed to come from. Now, you may be in the room saying, you know what? I didn't have a father present in my life, or maybe I didn't have a father teach me these things. So I'm off the hook. No, no, not so fast. There's no excuses. God's not going to let you off the hook that, that, that easy. I believe that he's expecting us, there, there are no excuses, and we need to accept responsibility in this, man. That we need to educate ourselves. We need to learn about these things. We need to read God's word and, and see what he has done so that we would know what to be able to teach. Maybe that means you need to get plugged into a, 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 a church. Maybe you need to go somewhere that you're getting solid biblical preaching and teaching. Maybe it's as simple as, Maybe if you have children in this room and you're saying, you know what, I, I don't know what to do. I got my hands full. Maybe you need to approach someone that's been successful at these things, at raising children or, 
investing in younger uh, people. And you might need to approach them and say, hey, I've noticed, man, you just do an excellent job. You, you, you know, you've done a great job with your children, or I've seen you working with the youth or the children ministry over there, and you just do such a good job. Could you teach me how to do this, how to do what you do? Could we meet up maybe once a week or every other week or something, and, and you begin to teach me how I can do this to reach the next generation myself? I can tell you, most people would be thrilled that you would come and ask them that. And they would probably say, tell me when, we want, when you want to start. And so maybe it's as simple as that. Connecting with someone that's a little bit wiser than you, more experienced than you, and, and, and learning from that individual. And I believe that we shouldn't only just look back at what God has established, the order he's established, but I believe that, that we do have to actually put these things in application and teach them to the next generation. It does us no good if we look back and see how God has done these things and the order he has if we don't actually teach them. And so I believe that Asaph is going to highlight the, the need to teach in, in verses 4 through 6. And I believe that he's actually going to address the, the most important things, I think, when you think about teaching. Uh, when, I, when I teach something, I want to know what I need to teach, when I need to teach it, and why I should teach it. And I believe Asaph is going to address those things, three things. What? When and why. In verse 4, he begins telling us that. He says that, that we're not going to conceal these things from our children, from their children. But we're going to tell to the generation to come. What are we going to tell them? The praises of the Lord. And His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. And so we see here that we need to teach, see, uh, uh, that we need to teach the next generation who God is what he's done. And then in verse 5, he's actually going to highlight some, some, the testimony of Jacob and the, the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. And so we're going to see, we need to teach them what God said. And so three things. We need to teach them who God is, what he's done, and what God has said. Who God is. I want to highlight that for a minute. We need to tell our children that everything begins and ends with God, with our creator. He, he is creator, sustainer, provider, ruler. That's who God is. That's just a, a brief clip of who he is. Now, you could spend a long time talking about that, but that, we, we need to begin there. He's our creator. It starts and ends with him. Next, what he's done. We need to tell about the wondrous works he's done. That's what he said here, Asaph said in verse 4, with the wondrous works that he's done. If you read the rest of this psalm, which I encourage you to do later today or later this week, go read the rest of this psalm, and Asaph actually highlights how God has worked in the history of Israel. That's what takes so long in this. That's why it's such a long chapter, because that's a lot of things. And he actually condenses it way down for us. And so he highlights the things that God has done in the past. And so we need to tell our children the, the wonderful works God has done in, in the past in, in, in his people. And we got a ready-made thing for us. We don't have to do really much work except just read it. God has given us all the things of how he's worked in the history of his people Asaph, he highlights the plagues, the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. He highlights how God provided for the people in the wilderness when they didn't have food and water, how he provided manna for them. But God has done so many wonderful and, and great and powerful things in the life of his people that we should be teaching our children. But not only that, I believe that God has worked in our lives individually. We don't need to disclose that from our children either. We need to include that in. We need to tell our children you know, how God has worked in our life, how he saved and transformed us. We need to teach it, you know, tell them about, hey, you know, maybe God had, had done a great work in your marriage and saved your marriage. 
Maybe God has done a great work and provided for you when you didn't think there was any way you were going to survive. You were going to have food to put on the table for your children. You need to tell your children about these things, about how God is working your life. Maybe it's he he helped you get through school when you didn't think you were going to be able to. There's so many things God is working all the time. And so teach your kids these things. And lastly, we need to teach what God has said. It it talks about, like I said, in verse five, it talks about the laws and commands. We need to make this book the center of what we teach our children. It should take first place above everything else. I love sports. I love history. I love math. I love all these different things. But before teaching my children those things, I need to teach them this. I need to make sure that they're getting this. It's the only thing that's going to last in their life. In Matthew uh, 24, 35, it says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the only thing that's going to last forever. I've been noticed on social media there's been a lot of uh, a trending. Uh, one thing that's been trending is, is generational wealth. And I think it's so funny that's trending because normally when they're talking about it, they're talking about you know, leaving an inheritance for their children or leaving some business that they can make money. They're, they're talking about all these things. But can I tell you, this, this is true generational wealth. Leave this for your children. This will last forever. It's going to last longer than that business will. It's going to last more than any inheritance. Don't, I'm not saying don't do those things. I think they're great. I hope to do some of those things for my children. But make sure you leave them this first. Because this, no one's going to be able to, to take this from them. It's not going to rust. It's not going to decay. It's, it, it's going to last forever. It's not going to pass away. This is true generational wealth. I also think about when I think about the laws and commands as we teach those to our children. I've always found it funny. One of the criticisms I hear oftentimes is that, you know, the Bible, it's this big rule book. It's real burdensome. Why did God give us all these hard commandments to keep? The list goes on and on. Have any of y'all ever heard those criticisms before? I see a few heads shaking. In the first service, no one ever heard that criticism, I don't think. And so I was the only person in the room that heard that criticism. Uh, But that is a criticism that I hear often, and I always just kind of chuckle at that. I laugh a little bit because I think it's a bad understanding of God's Word. Because I believe that, that there's so much good in this, it's not meant to be burdensome. Whenever someone tells me that, I always think about, we don't apply that logic to any other thing in our lives. Everything else, we want rules, and we want boundaries. I think about sports for an example. I love sports. So could you imagine a football game with no rules? It would be chaos. It wouldn't be enjoyable to watch nor play. I don't know about y'all. I wouldn't play football without any rules. I wouldn't let my children play football without any rules, much less any other sport for that matter. It would not be enjoyable. And so we don't apply that logic to any other thing in our lives. We want rules. We want boundaries. They're actually for our good and for our benefit. I want to highlight a psalm, Psalm 19, that actually talks about this very thing. Psalm 19. It's going to highlight God's God's laws and his commands and and just how much they're a blessing for us. They're a benefit for us. God didn't put these things here to, to hold us back, to make things hard for us. He put them there for our benefit and protection. Look in Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. That's a great spot. It's perfect and restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. I love this section here. 
They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much than much fine gold. We all like money in here, right? God's word is more precious than that. We, 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 this next line, too, is great, especially for me. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I don't know, but I got a sweet tooth. I, I'm always eating candy. I've been, I've been referenced that I eat more sweets than anyone. Uh, I've had someone tell me that I eat more sweets than anyone they've known. God's word is sweeter than those things. It, it, it's, it's sweet. It's good for us. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So there's a great reward in keeping and understanding and knowing these things. God didn't put these here for our, he didn't put them there to hold us back or to make things complicated for us. They're actually a great blessing and a benefit for us. There's a great reward in keeping them and understanding them. And so let me challenge you to teach the next generation the things God has said. As I mentioned those three things, what God has done, uh, who he is, what he's done, and and what he said, I think about my own children, and I just want to be honest with you. I try to do this at my home. I, I'm not perfect at it. My wife and I, we, we come up short sometimes, but we try to do this. And, and I just want to give you a little bit of, of, uh, of some practical application here that, that we try to do. Um, you might be wondering, I don't even know where to begin to teach who God is or what he's done. That's a big task. And so for us, I have smaller children, so you might, depending on the age of your children, you have to adjust this, change this. But my children, I got an 18-month-old and a 3-year-old. And so for us, it's very simple. I have a children's Bible. I think about our schedule. My family and I, the only time that we really come together as a family, like where we're sitting down, where it's not chaos, is, is at dinner time and bedtime. And we found that dinner time is better for us to do this. And so at dinner time, we try to we read a little story out of the Bible. Uh, last night, we read about, who we read about? We read about, I believe, Joseph. We read about Joseph last night. And so we try to daily just read a short story from that children's Bible. It takes us just a couple minutes. Another thing we do is, is what's called, people call this, we need to do catechisms. That's a fancy word for it. But these are just short statements about who God is. And so we use this book with, with our children. It says everything a child should know about God. And, and in it, it I, I love this resource. It's really cool. And I'll tell you, last night didn't go so well. I pulled this book out, and my oldest son said, no, Daddy, I don't want to read that book. I just want to read the Bible. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, like, fine, that's, that's fine. But we try to read this one too, and it's, and it's very short and simple, and you adjust it how you need to. I believe this can be even adopted to, to older, to, you know, high school. Uh, to, I, th- I think it's been good for me as an adult to read through, through. But last night, what we should have learned was that God made the first man and woman. That's simple. Another one that we've, that we've read, it says, uh, who does the Bible teach us about? God. It's short, simple statements. And in it, they got pictures, and they, you know, depending on the age of your kids, you can, they got a little bit you can read here. They even have some scripture reference. If you really are, you got some older children that can handle that. My kids can't handle that right now. We do good to get through one setting of this. Okay, and so we try to do this on a regular basis where we're teaching them, you know, who God is and what he's doing, and we're trying to teach them about his laws and commands. Hear me, it is a challenge, but it's also a lot of fun because now I'll be, my, my kid, he was building something one day, talking about a tower. He said, build a tower, and I said, hey, gee, uh, you remember uh, we read about that tower, and, and what, what, what did God, did he, what did he do with that tower? And he said, Jesus didn't like that tower, talking about the Tower of Babel. And, 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 I, and I found it fascinating. These things are beginning to stick with him. He may not understand them, but they're sticking. And so let me just challenge you to, to teach your children these things. 
It doesn't take a lot. It can be very simple and basic, uh, but it'll go a long way. The next spot in here that, that, that uh, Asaph, back to our passage in Psalm 78, in verses 5 and 6, he actually quotes a very famous piece of Scripture. Um, in, in verse 5, it says that he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. And so that actually is pulling, he's pulling that from a, an Old Testament passage, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And so this is a very famous piece of scripture that he was pulling from this idea from. And, and I just want to read it for you guys. Deuteronomy 6, verses uh, 4 through 9. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And I believe here in verse 7, slow down here, and I told you that, that this passage is going to tell us what we should teach and when we should teach. Here is the when. And so by Asaph quoting this verse, I believe here we get the when we should teach our children. And so it says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I believe here that, that the win is very simple. It's always. This should be, God is wanting this to be a lifestyle for us. He's wanting us to teach our children at, at any given moment, when they get up in the morning to when they go to bed at night. This comes up in, in subtle ways. There's different ways to do it. But for us, like I said, we want to have a consistent time at dinner time. That works for us. But during the day, my, child, my children, they ask questions. They say things, and I'm always looking for opportunities. I'm always trying to be prepared to be able to teach them something about who God is and what he's done and what he said. And so this is meant to be a lifestyle. We should be doing this daily throughout the day. And so I believe this is something we should always be doing. And, and I love in this passage we just read, too, and also the other passage in Deuteronomy, and even here in Psalms, uh, Psalm 40, uh, 78, it says that th this pronoun keeps coming up, your. Teach your children, your grandchildren. Fathers, teach your children. That, that pronoun keeps coming up. And I believe that's because what he's reminding us is the parent's job to teach the children. It's the parent's job to teach the next generation. Now, hear me out. I am a youth pastor. It is part of my job to teach children the things about God. That is, that's part of my job. But it's not, I'm not the primary, I shouldn't be the primary teacher in the children. It is designed, God designed this that the, the parents do this and the father takes the lead on it, okay? Now, IG, he's over there teaching your children now. That's part of his job, but he shouldn't be the primary person, okay? We are here to assist and help and encourage you and support what you're doing. Now, I'll be honest with you, we get a lot of kids that, that, that come from homes that, they don't have a parent that can teach them, okay? And that happens. But for the parents that are believers in the room, it's, you're, it's, you're the primary person to teach them these things. And we want to encourage you and support you any way we can, okay? We don't want to get in the way. We don't want to pull away from what you do. We want to support you and help you. And I believe that pronoun, your, is very important, that God has established this order, that the, it's the parent's job. 
Fathers, it's your job to take the lead. It's a full-time job. There's no excuses. And I believe in this last section here, Asaph, he, he, he addresses a very important aspect. I told you he's going to tell us what to teach, when to teach it. In this final movement, he tells us why we should teach. And the title of this third, third point is that fathers need to warn. Fathers need to warn. This highlights verses 7 and 8. And I'm just going to read it. It says that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. We have to realize why we're teaching. And he lays it out very clearly here that he didn't want the generation to come to forget the works of God. He wanted they should keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. Can I tell you, we're in a, a generation now that has forgotten these things. And let me even take it a step further. I believe we're in a generation now that most of them have not even heard these things to begin with. They haven't even had them to forget. But let me tell you, we, we have to warn them of the dangers that they're facing. We have to warn them of the pitfalls that they are going to run into if they continue to reject God. I want to highlight an example from uh, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 17, verses 13 through 15, highlights a great example of, of this, of, of the people rejecting the things that, that, the, that they have been taught, and it also highlights the consequences in 2 Kings 17. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Verse 13 through 15, it says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servant, the prophets. Here we go in verse 14. However, they did not listen, they, but they stiffened their neck like their fathers. How did their fathers stiffen their neck? They did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he had made with their fathers and his warnings and with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. We see here that God had laid out all these things and, and they did the exact things that he did. They rejected him. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe in him. They, they didn't obey the covenants he laid out. Let's see what their consequence was. Because that's what I'm curious. I want to know what, what, what was the consequence for not doing those things. 2 Kings 17, verse 23, a little bit later, I'm going to skip a few verses. Verse 23, it says, So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Because the people rejected God, they were carried away from their land. They were carried away to Assyria. Assyria was another nation that came in and, and waged war against Israel. They won the war and took the people back to Assyria's slaves. There was a great consequence for them by rejecting God. That happened directly because they rejected God. If you want another example, you can look at when the people left Egypt. God told them, hey, I'm going I'm to take you to the promised land. When they got there, they doubted God. They said, these people are too big. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe he was good enough. And what was their consequence? They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 
all because they rejected God and didn't do the things he said. And so let me let me warn you, let me caution you that, that, that we have to tell the next generation there are great pitfalls and dangers from rejecting God. It will be costly for them. And let me tell you, if it's costly for them, it's going to be costly for us because we're going to be the ones dealing with the mess, right? We're going to have to be the ones to help try to clean up the mess. And so let's get on the front end. Let's warn the next generation of the pitfalls and dangers that are coming if they reject God. These fathers, they, they, they didn't do their job. They didn't do the God had established order that fathers were to lead in this, and they failed to do that, and it was very costly. Let me tell you, we don't have to suffer from the same mistakes that they made. We can, we can begin warning the next generation. But let me tell you, I hope for three things. As we warn the next generation, I have three things that I hope for. It's not that they would be perfect little Christians and they would be able to quote to me all the Bible and they would know all the songs we sing and they wouldn't make mistakes. Those are not the things I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for three things. That they would, that they would know God in their minds, they would trust God in their hearts, and they would obey God with their lives. Those are three things I'm hoping for. They would know Him in their minds, trust Him in their heart, and obey Him with their lives. That's all, I can, that's all we can ask for. I believe if, if we can hope and pray for those three things with the next generation, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to go well. I believe we'll begin to see a change. We'll, this, this absent father crisis that we're dealing with that is resulting in a rejection of God, I believe we'll begin to see a shift. You know, instead of 66% of the children leaving the church once they graduate, we'll, we'll see that number begin to shrink. That group of nuns that's growing and rising, that's large, that's one out of every four adults, we'll begin to see it, it, it shrink and, and, and stop growing. But we have to do our job. We've got to look back. We've got to teach the next generation and we've got to warn the next generation about the things that, are, that they're facing. As, as we close today, I have four points of application that I want to share with you. Four very specific things I think that we can do starting today to begin making a change. If you didn't hear anything else, if you slept through the sermon, this time wake up and, and maybe take some of the points that, that, that I gleaned from, from, this, from studying this. Number one, fathers must herald the gospel at all times. Must herald the gospel. It means we talk about the gospel. We share the gospel. We need to do this with our families, first and foremost, our friends. Our, at our job, we need to herald the gospel. Our children need to see how the gospel impacts us. They don't need to just hear us talk about it at home, and then when we get on the job, we make some crazy poor decision that doesn't reflect God at all. And then when we go hang out with our friends doing our hobbies, we, we are doing something that we told them yesterday not to do. There's an old saying that, I, that some of my friends use, do as I say, not as what I do, or something like that. It goes something along those lines, and I think that is it's a terrible saying. It's a terrible saying. We need to lead out and herald the gospel at home. Our kids need to see those things. Secondly, we should, that family worship is crucial. Um, I, I've read several books that talk about family worship, and I, I've, I went to seminary, and there were many students there, and, and seminary is a place where your pastors, they go to get trained to lead the church. And most people there, and the, the, the research that the books are based on, and most of the people in seminary, they didn't grow up in homes that, that celebrated family worship, that they were reading and singing and praying around the table. That, that wasn't a common thing. And that's okay because we can make a change. We can adjust those things, right? And, and many, many people in that group, they came from homes that were doing some things right. But we've got to keep family worship 
We've got to hold it up. We've got to do that. And, and like I said earlier, it can be so simple. It doesn't have to be a complicated thing. It can be something as simple as reading a few verses and discussing those. It can be as simple as singing a song or two, if that's what your family likes to do. My family, we're not very good singers. And so this isn't like the best thing for us. Uh, but then pray. Just spend a moment praying with your family. And, and if you have, you know, I have younger kids. And so that's a lot of me doing that. As you get older and you have teenagers, let them be involved with it. Let them pick out the verses you read. Let them maybe choose the songs if you sing songs. or Let them lead out in the prayer. Let them have some involvement in it. Adjust it to whatever your family dynamic or situation is. Not, there's not a one-size-fits-all for this. I'm sorry, there's not. I don't have that for you. But you can adjust it depending on your circumstances. So fathers herald the gospel. Family worship is crucial. The last two, I believe, are the most important. Number three is that we need to look for children with no father. We need to look in our community. We need to look in our circle of, of influence and see, are there children there that don't have a father or a positive role model for you, lady, uh, someone, that, uh, a strong woman in their life that, that, that they can look to? And so adjust this to, to your gender. But we need to look in our circle. Maybe it's our, our, maybe we have niece and nephews. Maybe we have someone that lives on the same street as we do. Maybe it's one of our, our close friends. Maybe it's their children that, that maybe don't have a father in their life for some reason or another. We need to look for the people in our lives that, that, that don't have a, a father figure in their lives. If you're looking for, for that, I've got a, a long list that I can help you with. I would say start right here in your church. Um, I, I, like I mentioned, I serve with the youth. And uh, before COVID, we were running approximately 30, 30 or so youth in, in our youth group. And I would be willing, I, I just based on memory and kind of thinking about it, we had approximately five to six, maybe seven of those that actually had a positive role model, male role model in their life. You think about it, out of 30-something kids, approximately five, between five and seven of them had a male figure that was a positive influence living with them. That's really low. That's really low. That's a problem. And so I'm challenging you to think about are there anyone, is there anyone in your circle, anyone you know in your life that needs that role model? And number four, it starts with us, men. It starts with us. The way that Asaph closed this, this section here, he says that in verse 8, he said, Not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. It starts with us. We have to have, we can't have an unprepared heart or an unfaithful spirit. And so that's the question you have to ask yourself. Do I have a prepared heart? Am I faithful? Now, let me just challenge you, man. A great prayer. I think I'm going to bring it up on the stream, Psalm 51. This is a great prayer for you to include in your life on a daily basis. I would encourage you to memorize this verse and to pray it daily. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's short and simple, but I believe that's the prayer. I believe that's what it's going to take. This generation, they didn't have that. They didn't prepare their heart. They didn't have a steadfast spirit. Man, we should be praying and asking God to cleanse our heart and to renew a steadfast spirit within us. When I think about this psalm and I think about this passage, it reminds me of flying on an airplane. I love flying on airplanes. I hadn't been able to do it in quite a while, but I've always found it fascinating that they, they highlight what to do in case of emergency. And what they always say without fail is if the oxygen mask drops down in front of you, put yours on first. 
Put your oxygen mask on first. Don't help other people first. You put yours on first. Because they realize that you could be helping all these people, doing all these things, and then you mess around and pass out, and now you're ineffective. Man, we have to clean our heart. Our heart has to be clean first. If we want to be effective in this battle, we have to have a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. It starts with us. If your heart is not pure, if you don't have a steadfast, you are going to be ineffective in this. You are going to try to do these things, and you're going to pass out. And we're going to be trying to help to tend to you and help you clean up myth. It starts with you. If you want to be effective in this, follow this prayer. Clean my heart. Give me a steadfast spirit, Lord. When I think about a clean heart, I think that that's something difficult for us to grasp sometimes. For, for us, we think about when we clean our hands, that's a really easy thing for us to grasp. Like, we know how to do that. There's a few steps, and it's really simple. The CDC had all kinds of advertisements showing us how to do it the past year. You go to the bathroom, you get a little soap, get some water, rub your hands together, you know, and, and clean them off. Real simple. One of the things I hate the most is when I clean my hands, and then in two minutes later, they're dirty. I hate that. But for us, cleaning our heart is not as simple. It's not as simple as going to get soap and water. There's only one thing that can clean our heart, and that's the blood of Christ. That's the only thing that can cleanse our heart. And so the question today is, have you allowed the blood of Christ to cleanse your heart? Have you repented and confessed your sins and trusted him with your life? Because without that, you're, you're not going to have a clean heart. And so let me challenge you today to allow the Lord to cleanse your heart. We're about to enter a time of response. I want to pray as Tyler comes up. And, uh, and so would you, would you pray with me? And, and if, if, if you haven't accepted as Lord your Savior, or if you can think about some young men in your life, right now it's a great time to think about them. If you think about maybe failures you've had, maybe as a parent, it's not too late. It's not a, ask the Lord to forgive you that and, and, and pick up where you're at. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your word and the encouragement it brings us, the challenge it brings us, Lord. We acknowledge that there is a crisis, not just in America, Lord, but in this world. A crisis where we're seeing an absent father, Lord, and it's leading, it's leading to the rejection of you. And that's, that's the problem, Lord, the rejection of you. Lord, I pray that as we think about this text this morning, that, that Lord, our prayer would be that you would clean our hearts and give us a steadfast spirit. Lord, you would renew our spirit. Lord, we, we realize that it's only through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can have our hearts cleansed. But my prayer this morning is that, that if there's any out there that have not allowed you to do that, have not accepted the gift of your son, Lord, that this morning would be the time that they do that, that they would trust you. They would confess their sins to you. And they would allow you to work deeply in their lives. Lord, as I think about the things you've laid out, you've given us all the tools we need to be successful in this. You've given us the blueprint for success, Lord, and I pray that we would use it, we would implement it in our lives, that it wouldn't just sit there collecting dust, that we look to your word for guidance and wisdom, Lord, and that we would begin to see a change and transformation happen with this next generation, that we'd be faithful to tell them about who you are, what you've done, and what you've said, that we would teach them when we rise, as we go throughout our day, we would teach them 
all the time, Lord, we'd be looking for opportunities to share about who you are and what you've done. Lord, pray for the next generation, Lord, that, that they would be responsive, Lord, to the things that we have to offer. Lord, your word, it's, it's better than fine gold and it's sweeter than honey, Lord. I pray that they would, they would realize that and understand that and, and that the next generation would accept you and allow you to bless them, that they wouldn't make the same mistakes that the previous generations have made. Lord, I pray we'd be faithful in this task. You've given us a great responsibility and task here. I pray we'd be faithful with it. We ask for your help. We realize that on our own, we can't do this, Lord. We need your help. Father, we love you. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved and that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior, he will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during the time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media, at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continuing the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time, right here at Word Baptist Church.